great city. It's a wonderful city. It's the place that I've always wanted to live and I'm planning to retire here. I see no reason to go anywhere else. I love Sydney. But there is a black spot about Sydney and I'm not talking about the casino, nor about any particular intersection where there's troubles or there's a, some kind of area of institutional. Sydney is a black spot. And the black spot on Sydney is the fact that it's not a very good place to want to live anywhere else. That's the problem with Sydney. When you get here, the place is beautiful. The beaches are close by, the harbour's magnificent, the climate's wonderful, there's great freedom and ease. You can walk across Piedmont Bridge laughing at silly hats and no one minds, and you can walk across Piedmont Bridge wearing a silly hat and nobody minds. It's a, it's a place of wonderful freedom and openness and, and happiness and joy. It's a great place to be and that's its problem because you've got no desire to be anywhere else, nor any desire to live for another day. It is all here now. Now, of course, that's not the case with Malachi, because in Jerusalem, in Malachi's day, it wasn't a pleasant place to be. In fact, in most parts of the world, it's not all that pleasant. Would you like to live in Libya? I mean, I wouldn't have liked to have lived in Libya under Mr Gaddafi, but now that he's out and we don't know who's in, I'm not altogether sure I'd like to live there now either. And if it's not Libya, it's Syria. If it's not Syria, it's Tripoli. Where in the Middle East would you actually want to live? Or in the poverty of India or Pakistan or in the overcrowdedness of China or in the oppression of that government or in the kind of racist government of Malaysia? Where in the world would you want to live? See, most places... People are fairly desperate to get out of them. We don't have hundreds of Australian refugees fleeing Australia to go and live elsewhere. They don't get on boats to hive over to Indonesia so that they can go and live in Afghanistan. There's the problem for us in understanding reality, in understanding life. Malachi's day, the Jews were looking forward to a better day to a new day, to the day God had promised by his prophets, (laughs) excuse me, to the day of prosperity, when they would once more own their own promised land. The Messiah would rule over them and over the nations, and evil oppressors would be finally overthrown. And so if we look back to Malachi 3.16, those who have feared the Lord and spoke to one another, and the Lord paid attention to them, Book of Remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his day. These group of people, they met together and God said they will be mine in verse 17 and I will remember them, they will be my treasured possession when the time comes, when the new age comes, when you'll be able to differentiate the righteous from the wicked, those who serve God from those who don't serve God. And that introduces our passage today, Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming when the Lord will come. It'll be the day of the Lord when he is gathering his people, his treasured possession, and when he's going to judge the world in righteousness. For it will be a day when once more you will see righteousness and unrighteousness. You will see God's people and those who are opposed to God. Chapter 4 verse 1 assures us that the day is coming as a day of fire, burning like a furnace. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble, 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's the day when all evildoers will be cut down. They'll be reduced to stubble and burnt off and there'll be nothing left of them. It's a day, verse 3, you will see, when you will tread down the wicked for they'll be ashes under the sole of your feet. They'll be, the wicked will be trodden down like ashes scattered out on the wet, platform, on the wet footpath to prevent you from slipping. But it's a funny thing about the sun, you know. When the sun rises, it causes us terrible problems here in Australia with our bushfires, doesn't it? And yet, the sun also brings us great warmth and pleasure and life. It's the same sun. And when it rises with warmth, it will bring healing and freedom in verse 2, leaping like the calves out of the stall. So this day that is coming is a day that will be terrifically exhilarating, like, well, like spring, but it will be a day that will bring the scorching heat of summer as well. So that the distinction of good and evil will be brought out into the open. For those who serve God and esteem his day name, the day will be a great day. And for those who do not serve God, the wicked, that same day will be an awful day. But God's preparation for the coming of the day is quite open and public. Back in chapter 3 verse 1, God says, I am sending my messenger back over the page in the previous chapter behold I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messengers of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the Lord of hosts but who can endure the day of his coming and who will stand when he appears for he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap oh the Lord is coming but he is sending a messenger before he comes, when he comes to visit his house, his people, his land, his temple. For that is where the judgment of the world, God, uh, the world starts with, with God's temple and spreads out to his city and to his land and to the ends of the earth. But who's this messenger? Not much is said about him. How he comes, when he appear, where he will speak. Very little is said about it. We're just told the messenger is coming before the Lord arrives. But when we go across to our New Testament in Matthew chapter 11, we find Jesus speaking and Jesus says that messenger is none other than John the Baptist. Jesus identifies the messenger of chapter 3 verse 1 with John the Baptist himself. Now here in Malachi chapter 4, we learn something more of this messenger. For before the day the Lord comes, he's going to send, we are told in verse 5, Elijah. Elijah comes to prepare the way of the Lord. Now notice the role of Elijah. He's going to turn the hearts, it's in verse 5 and 6, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Now again in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah. John didn't understand that himself. Chapter 1 of John's Gospel, when they ask him, he says, no, no, no that, that's not me. He doesn't understand it. 
But then he didn't understand Jesus properly either because when he's in prison, he sends messengers to say, are you the one or do we look for another? John, like all the prophets, didn't always know everything there was to know. He was in ignorance about certain things. But Jesus identifies John as the Elijah. He is the one who was to come. So Malachi warns those who are looking forward to the day that they must be looking for Elijah, which is kind of strange because Elijah was hundreds of years beforehand. That is, the way they must look forward is by looking backwards. If they're to understand the day that is coming, they must keep looking backwards. It's a little strange, it's a little counterintuitive, but in fact, it's the wisdom of the Scriptures throughout. The way to prepare for the future is to understand the past. So the way to look forwards is to look backwards. That is, being a Christian is like rowing a boat. The only way to keep in a straight line when rowing a boat is to continue to look at the place from which you've come. Soon as you look over your shoulder to see where you're going, one hand rows fast harder than the other and the boat skews off in the wrong direction. You can row straight if you keep looking backwards, but you can't row straight if you look forwards to where you're going. I know very little about rowing, but even I've managed that. The other thing about rowing I've discovered too is always take the anchor out before you start rowing, otherwise you just go in circles. But keeping your eye in the back helps you know that you're going where you're going. That is the direction that you set. Now, our world of fads and fashions never knows which way it's going. And those who make predictions are notorious for getting them wrong, be it the occult or the mediums and astrologists, or be it the economists and the politicians, their capacity for getting it right is fairly small. It's less than random. They're notoriously wrong, and yet every day people listen to them. They'll go around and check out what the economists think the Reserve Bank is going to do to rates of interest at the moment, and then they've got only a random chance of ever getting it right. Because, after all, this is the people who run our markets, and when you look at our markets, especially in the last few months, what wisdom have you seen? The people who are investors in markets at the moment appear to me to be fish in a school of fish. They all go this way, that way, that way, this way, that way. There's no further evidence that they've got upon which they're making their decisions, but they just want to hang in the mob because the person who's going to lose is the one who's on the edge of the school of fish, isn't it? That's the one the shark's going to take. That, and fear of failure means I'm going to hang in with the crowd. Everyone's buying, I'm buying. Everyone's selling, I'm selling. They're buying, I'm buying. They're selling, I'm selling. I'm buying international, I'll buy international. They're selling international, I'll sell international. It just is meaningless. Within a few hours, the market has changed, even though there is no information upon which to base a change in market other than it's changing, folks. We need to move. And in a whole range of ways, how humans act is like that. Everybody thinks this is good. Well, I'll go and they think that's good, so I'll go and do that. This is the latest. Well, I must do the latest, mustn't I? And yet, if you want to keep going in a straight direction... Look where you've come from. Understand the present in the light of the past so that your trajectory for the future will be in the right direction. In part, this is why history is such an important subject for Christians. Buddhist history, Hindu history, is a contradiction in terms. Buddhism is about the present. 
There is no past, there is no future, there's just the now. That's all that exists. As with Hinduism, there is only the present. As with hedonism in Australia, they do not think about the consequence down the future. It's just the present. Be it the alcoholic, be it the gambler, be it the the sex addict, be it whatever it might be, it is the present that we are engaged in and tomorrow will look after itself, hopefully, somehow. And the past that God wants us to look at is Moses. Verse 4, remember Moses. Remember the law that my servant Moses was given at Mount Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. Uh, The Bible has different names for the same place and we think this is very strange. But remember uh, Port Jackson is Sydney Harbour is the Parramatta River. We've got multiple names for the same place. You just know, don't you? And they knew Horeb, Sinai, same place. Zion is the hill in Jerusalem upon which the temple is built. So it's the same place, Zion, Jerusalem, temple. Well, Horeb, Sinai, God gave the law to Moses. That is, remember the constitution of our nation. Remember the founding documents and covenant of our nation. When I made you my people, says God, when I explained to you what it meant to be my people, how you would live and how you would have to live if you're going to be my people. You're going to bear my name? These are the people of Yahweh? Well, Yahweh's people live this way. Now remember what I told, for God gave to his people the land. He promised it to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and he gave it to them under Joshua. A land flowing with milk and honey and Joshua and the rest, they just walked in and took it. They took the cities that they hadn't built, the houses they hadn't built, the fields they hadn't planted. It was all given to them, this wonderfully rich land, because God gave it to them. But God also gave them the promise of blessings and curses. It was a choice. Whichever they wanted would in the end be theirs. If they obeyed the voice of God and kept his commandments, well then they would be blessed with prosperity beyond belief and their fields and their crops and their families would all be fruitful and live peacefully. But if they rejected God and ignored his ways, why, then the land would be cursed. Their fields, their crops, their families would suffer until in the end, eventually, they'd be kicked out of the land because the people who are to occupy God's land are to be God's people. And if you're going to reject God and his ways, well, you're not God's people. And so they were to remember the law, especially, say, the Ten Commandments. But it wasn't just you shall not steal, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. They're the kinds of ones Australians remember. Nor was it just those opening ones. You shall have no other gods but me. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You must keep the Sabbath. But remember especially the fifth commandment. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. If you want to stay in the land, honour your parents. Here is the first commandment with a promise. It's not, don't do this, don't do that, like the other commandments. It's, if you do this, you will receive this, with the implication, if you don't do it, 
you will not receive it. Honouring and obeying your parents was a critical part of receiving the blessings of God. Staying prosperous in the promised land as dishonouring and disobeying your parents would lead you to being excluded from the blessings of the promised land. Now, it's a little strange to our ears. But when you come to a list of sins and sinfulness in Romans chapter 1, when Paul tries to outline how degenerate human nature can become, he, he gives a long list of detestable and horrible things that people do like evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. And then he rises to a great climax and says, disobedient to parents. And to 21st century Australians, you think, huh? You know, murderers, thieves, malicious, evil, and you're going to rise to the ultimate of sinfulness in disobeying parents. We think this is so common and so unimportant that we wouldn't even list it with the list of sins, let alone heinous sins. But of course, it is a dreadful thing, antisocial and destructive of society to encourage disobedience to parents. The breakup of the family is the breakup of society. Society, every society around the world is built on family solidarity and to undermine family solidarity is to undermine society. It's one of the worst things that you can do. I know parents are sinners. I am one. I've even known some grandparents who are sinners. I'm one of them too. And and we make many mistakes. But that parents make mistakes doesn't mean children shouldn't be obedient. Two wrongs don't make a right, and we don't determine what's right by looking at what's wrong. But there's another reason why God was calling upon the Jews back to their parents. For if you obey your parents, if you honour your forebears who obeyed their parents, who honoured indeed their parents, well, eventually as you go back through the parents, you'll come back to Moses in the wilderness accepting the covenant challenge to be God's people. And indeed, if you go further back, you'll eventually go back to the patriarchs to whom the promised land has been promised, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They received the promises of the promised land. You are living in their land, the land they were promised, and you must honour them. If you reject Abraham, why are you living in Abraham's land? You reject Jacob, you reject Isaac, and yet you want to be the recipients I hate my father, but I'm very glad he mentioned me in my will. I mean, if you're going to receive the inheritance, then honour the man who has given you the inheritance. In Malachi's day, the people under the false priests had all but forgotten the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all but ignored the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Horeb when Moses received the law. And Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would be spinning in their graves to see the pagan ways in which the people, their people, their descendants, were now living in the promised land of Yahweh. Uh, Listen to Isaiah the prophet on the subject from Isaiah 29 where he says, Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, 
Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands, in his midst, they will sanctify my name, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. It's a strange way of understanding it, but God says, look, Jacob, looking down at his descendants, is appalled. But I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to change them so that Jacob will no longer be appalled by what he sees in his people. And those who go astray in a spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. I'm going to transform the people so as to make Jacob proud of them rather than hurt by them. Or again in Isaiah 63, he speaks of Abraham and Jacob not knowing their children as they appeal to God as their father because their fathers have given them up. In Malachi chapter 4, God is going to send Elijah, a prophet who in his day called Israel back to the fathers, a prophet who in his day called Israel to repent, to return, to go back to basics. He was the prophet of the northern kingdom, Israel, not the southern kingdom, Judah. And he was the one who declared judgment upon that northern kingdom for their wicked ways. For God was coming to send his prophet of doom, but now he's going to send that prophet of doom to Judah. The one who called Israel back to repent and they didn't, and they were destroyed, is now coming to you to call upon you to repent, lest you too be destroyed. And he's going to call upon the people of Judah to repent to their fathers that they may be spared the dreadful judgment of God falling upon them as it did on Israel. For God doesn't want to come to his land and his people and strike them with a curse of destruction, but rather restore them to the patriarchs. And when they come, then he will turn the fathers back to the children and the children back to the fathers. And then, of course, came that first ray of sunshine, that right ray of light that assured us that the dawn was arriving. I love to see the dawn. I'm an early riser, not a late stayer-upper. And I love to see the slowly lifting darkness as the beams of light first hit the, the clouds and then suddenly you see the little ball of fire pop over the horizon as it grows larger and larger and all the lights come on and our electricity is so puny in comparison to it there was the dawning of the new age when the Elijah, John the Baptist, came, proclaiming the kingdom of God, warning of the coming visit of the Lord and the judgment of God upon his people, calling upon the nations to repent, turning the hearts of the children back to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He didn't understand himself properly. He didn't understand how he was Elijah. Rather, he took his self-understanding from Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But his message of repentance brought with it baptism, for he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Being Jewish was not good enough. Saying that we have Abraham as our father was not good enough. God could raise up from the stones of the desert sons to Abraham if he wanted to. No, you had to be a spiritual child of Abraham. You had to come, wash away your sins, confessing them in a baptism of repentance. 
John's message was such a divisive one. It always has been, it always will be, to call on people to repent. The Pharisees hated it because they felt they were good enough, they didn't need to repent. The Herodians hated it because they were so wicked and degenerate, they didn't want to repent. But to those who hearkened to John's message, those who met together and feared the Lord and esteemed his name, they listened to the prophet and they loved him and his message. And then Jesus came, the one whom John foretold, the one whom the messenger Elijah was preparing the way for, the Lord, the judge, our saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he came not to curse the land but to save it, Yet they wouldn't have him. They wouldn't have him because they wouldn't have John the Baptist. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, Jesus says, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then there is this comment in Luke's Gospel. It's in chapter 7. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptised with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptised by him. John comes preparing the way. He hardens the hearts of the enemies of God and he declares repentance and forgiveness that those who esteem and fear God accept so that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, that hardness is already there that will crucify him. And that softness is already there that will follow him and accept his forgiveness. For if people refuse to hear the voice of God, then they won't accept God when he arrives. They'll find fault with everything he does. So Jesus rebuked his generation. Turn with me just quickly to page 984, 984, just in the next book, Matthew's Gospel, 984. For we read there in Matthew 11, verse 16, Jesus speaking, Matthew 11, verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The truth will out. See, you can't be satisfied. If you are in opposition to God, it doesn't matter what messenger God sends, you'll find fault with them. They speak too long, they speak too short, they're too handsome, they're too old, they're too young, they're too... Whatever it is, it it doesn't matter. People will always find fault with a messenger who comes from the God that they have rejected. And so when the leaders opposed Jesus, they said, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? And Jesus said, well, by what authority did John the Baptist do it? And of course they were caught out, weren't they? Because they knew John was a a prophet, so they couldn't deny he had the authority to speak the word of God because he spoke the word of God. But they couldn't say, yes, we'll accept John because John said Jesus was the one. So they said, well, we're not going to tell you. So Jesus said, well, I won't tell you either. They wouldn't have John. In fact, in the end, of course, they killed him. It therefore should be no surprise that they wouldn't accept Jesus and that in the end, they'd kill him. 
But those who feared the Lord, repented when they heard the message of John, were saved when Jesus came, bringing forgiveness of sins. For Jesus brought the dawning of the day, the day of the Lord, the day that we now live in. Sometimes it's called the year, the year of the Lord, Anno Domini, the AD, it's the same thing. The new age has come, the new day has dawned. And it's a day which will come in judgment, for it started in judgment, the judgment on Satan when Jesus bore the sins of the world and Satan was defeated. And it will finish in judgment with the fierce, irresistible destruction of all that is evil. And yet that day of judgment, of the fierce heat of the sun, is also the day which has the warmth of the sun of righteousness. And like the calves in spring bounding out of the stalls in their freedom and jumping around full of life, so are those who are saved by the sun of righteousness, who feel the warmth of the spring sun come upon us. The fierce burning heat of the sun of righteousness is coming even now. The warmth of salvation is with us now. So the message is the message of Malachi. It's the same. Repent. Repent for there is still time. The end of the day of the Lord has not yet come. It will. And that will be the end. But it has not, not yet. And so there is still time. Of course, in the end, that's a spiritual, that's a personal issue, isn't it? It's not an intellectual one. For it calls upon you to repent, to change the way you live, to no longer live in opposition against God, but to live in acceptance of him. It calls upon us in the confession of our sins to find the forgiveness that the Lord Jesus has won for us in his death and resurrection. Very interesting. The message of John in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2 is exactly the same as the message of Jesus in Matthew 4, to, 4 verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the message of Malachi. It's the message of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all things that you give to us, but above all, for this new day that has come with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that Son of righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. We thank you for the privilege we can have of enjoying the warmth of the day of salvation. And yet, Father, we know that with it comes also that awful day of judgment. And so, Father, we pray that each of us here, each of us and our families and our friends, might know of that day for its warmth and not for its fierce heat, that we might rejoice in the day that you have given to us and not live in horror. So bless us with repentance, Father, that we might turn back and know you as our Father, fully forgiven because of Jesus our Lord. And we pray it in his name. Amen.